This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm Deborah Yao, Senior Editor for Knowledge at Wharton. And I'm here with two finance professors from the Wharton School, David Musto and Krista Swartz. They're here to talk about their research paper, Notes on Bonds, a Liquidity Feedback During the Financial Crisis. Welcome, both of you. Oh, Thank great you. to be here. This year is the 10th anniversary of the peak of the financial crisis, so it seems fitting to talk about the related research you've done. In your paper, you note that the crisis moved many pricing relationships far out of line, and it's generally understood to be due to liquidity issues. But your research looks to dig deeper into the relationship between liquidity and asset prices during the crisis, so we can all learn from it. So can you tell us more about your study? Well, thanks. Yes. So this study grew out of the course that Krista and I both teach. It's a course called Capital Markets, and we cover various aspects of the capital markets, including the bond market and the basic arbitrage relationships between bond prices. By arbitrage relationships, what I mean is price price relationships that should be just so if people can engage in arbitrage when they get out of line. And in this class, there's an example that I have given over the years of three prices that have to be exactly in line with each other in a particular way. And you'd show them to illustrate what people in finance call the law of one price, right? You have two different ways of buying the same future cash flows. They should command the same price. It's the same future cash flows. And I would illustrate this over years. Look at these three prices, put them together, see, aha, they're all in line. And then when the financial crisis hit, I, I went to prepare my notes. I prepared them every year before class, and, I, and, and it just wasn't true. They simply were not in line. In fact, they were way out of line. I checked and checked and checked. I said, well, they just, they just are out of line. And, uh, that, and then I went and talked to Krista. We now we teach the same class. We talked about this. Um, I also talked about it with Greg Nini, our third co-author on it, who um, has been a professor here. He was actually my teaching assistant way back y- years ago for the same class. We all talked about it. And we thought, well, that is really peculiar. Let's, let's pursue that. Let's see if we can nail down what's going on here. Yeah, that's a great way to uh, introduce the topic of this arbitrage relationship that David refers to, um, whereby in the field that we work in and the research, the kind of research that we do, the assumption is often that you have a frictionless, efficiently, perfectly efficient market. And I think that a reason we found this particularly interesting was that the treasury market, which is the market in which this pricing deviation, this relative price divergence occurred, this is a market that is known for being among the most liquid and the least subject to price deviations or frictions um, possible. And so to see something that was such a very large relative price difference 
um, in this market where you have securities that you can perfectly replicate the cash flows of other securities in the same market. You all have the same credit risk with this. This is just a very clear violation of what economists refer to as the law of one price, whereby two portfolios that have the same guaranteed or certain cash flows should be priced identically. And what we found was that these two portfolios were priced more than $5 per $100 par value um, differently. So what treasury securities did you look at specifically, and how did you go about collecting that data? Well, so the, the distinction that we found was between securities that were issued with 30 years to maturity, issued back in the 80s, right? Back in the 80s with 30 years um, to, uh, to maturity. And then securities issued 20 years later that had 10 years to maturity when they were issued, right? So they issued 20 years later with 20 fewer years to maturity. So in fact, they had the same maturity date. So that's what allowed us to line them up exactly. And there's a little more twist to it, but basically that's what allowed us to line these things up exactly. And what we found was those are issued way back in the 80s were the ones that were really cheap. And consistently, if you look from one bond to the next, it really didn't matter which one you looked at. Each of them was during the crisis, crazy crisis times, was was really cheap, as Krista said, 5% below its, its exact match uh, that you created out of the, the securities that were issued you know, 20 years later. So, so we saw, you have a connection there. The old ones were cheap, even though they had the same length of time to maturity. And that's what started us thinking about, well, okay, what could be different? They look exactly the same. What could be different? Well, the one big difference that immediately came up was the question of liquidity, right? So when you look at those 30-year bonds, a lot of them are purchased by, uh, well, initially they might be purchased by investors who trade a lot, but over the years they're going to percolate into the long-term portfolios of, let's say, insurance companies, pension funds that just hold these things in portfolio. They just bury them deep in there, and they're just held there until they mature. And so the security kind of goes to sleep, and there's not much trading, even though it's, as I say, exactly the same as this other security that's issued much later and hasn't had that happen to it yet. And so were any of those findings surprising to you? So I think that, as David emphasized, the very fact that this anomaly was there and was present in the Treasury market and was so large, I should emphasize it wasn't something that a price differential that occurred overnight and then the next day it came back together. This is something that lasted for months and months. And in normal times, you would have arbitrageurs buying the relatively cheap security, selling the relatively expensive security. And in the way that we were combining these securities, David had mentioned that there were the older ones that were issued uh, many years ago and then the more recently issued ones. The way we combined them actually perfectly matched the cash flows. So we used these other securities in the treasury market called strips, whereby we could really have these perfectly replicating portfolios. And in normal times, an arbitrageur would buy the cheap thing, sell the expensive thing, and that would 
cause the prices to cause these pricing relationships to come back in line with one another. And the fact that that didn't happen for such a long period of time, I think that was perhaps one of the most surprising things. So market liquidity can be interpreted in lots of different ways. And I think that was what under was underlying a lot of what uh, occurred in the 2007, 8, 9, 10 period. But the exactly what the, the mechanism was through which that manifested itself in these price differences, that was what intrigued us to really pick it apart. Right, yes. Yeah. So, so one, one thing we looked at immediately was, um, uh, I can get a little technical here, but the repo market. Right, the repo market is, 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 is I'm talking what I mean by repo is repurchase agreements. Repurchase agreements are how you are fundamental to trading in in the bond market. If you want to buy something, you finance your purchase by borrowing in the repo market. And if you want to short sell something, which you're going to do in an arbitrage like this, you're going to short sell the expensive thing and buy the cheap thing. To short sell, you use the repo market actually in the other direction. You're not borrowing cash. You're actually borrowing the security. And uh, so when people see an arbitrage like this, they might think, okay, it looks profitable. It looks profitable. Once you go try to do those repos, you will see the repos are so expensive that there, there goes your profit, right? And so we actually went and got data from the repo market uh, so that we could look directly. Okay, well, let's see. How, how expensive was it to put on this trade? Is, in fact, that wiping out the profitability? And the answer was no. I mean, that, I mean, that was, I guess that was a sort of a surprise that uh, kind of used to the idea that once you actually dig down, dig, 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 and you look at actually putting on the trade, you see, oh, well, actually, there's this friction that turns out to wipe out the whole thing. No, it, it, was, it was a bit of a friction, okay, but not, not the order of magnitude of, of the mispricing. So you weren't going to explain it. You weren't going to explain it by saying it looks like a juicy trade, but actually you couldn't have actually done it. You could have done it. Can you get into the um, the causes of the mispricing in more detail? Well, um, the um, so so the, so the contrast between the cheap thing and the expensive thing, as I was saying, really almost have to be liquidity, right? They're really sort of just by elimination. There's nothing else, right? It has to be liquidity. So really, then the question is, um, who is trading? in a way that is essentially creating this pr big premium price for more liquid securities at this time. All right. And I think, I don't know if, Chrissy, you want to explain what we found there? So what we were looking for was the characteristic um, or something that identified the type of investor that would be more likely to actually buy the relatively expensive security as it got more expensive and and or sell the relatively cheap one because clearly that's the type of activity that would have to be occurring in order for this anomaly for the price differential to widen further and to widen further for so long and then to persist afterward. And so we found a set of 
data that showed all Treasury transactions um, that were signed, and we could see security-specific, whether there were purchases or sales and in what quantities. And we examined that to discover which were there certain characteristics of the investors that were either on the side of the trade that were quote-unquote arbitraging it or on the other side of the trade arguably worsening it. Um, And what we found, so the data set that we had was actually quite a large data set. It's for all U.S. registered insurers, and it shows all their transactions over our sample period. And we found that the types of insurers that tended to be more exploiting this price differential and perhaps profiting from it were those that actually were well capitalized, those that were not as highly levered, and importantly, those who were able to hold on to a position for a long period of time or had a long investment horizon based on the data. And so this indicates that, I guess one point that I should mention is we're looking at a mispricing in the fixed income market. And in the treasury market, you sort of assume that the cash flows are guaranteed because the government's not going to default, they're going to pay their debts. And so you could think, well, sure, this might be an arbitrage if I can hold it till maturity for the next X number of years till the securities, you know, pay back their cash flows. But it might not be if I have to unwind it in the next year or two. And so there is that risk. And what our findings were, were very consistent with the idea that the investors who would be more likely to be able to hold on for a long period of time and see this thing through to maturity and be guaranteed that relative price differential that they had locked in when they bought cheap and sold expensive, those are the ones that were actually doing it. And then the ones on the other side of the trade were those who were subject to liquidity redemptions, more highly subject to liquidity redemptions, um, insurers that tended to be annuity focused, those that were more highly levered. And so the way we thought about that, and indeed the first title of the paper was liquidity in the Great Recession at all costs or something along those lines. And I kind of liked that intuition because it really was you are in a position, say, as an insurer, where you need to get liquidity or you need to raise cash immediately, and you're willing to sell your security at any cost to do that, or you're willing to buy a security that's particularly liquid at any price. You're um, willing to pay any premium because you want to hold a security that if you need to, you can turn that thing around quickly. Well, I think uh, the way I look at it, let me just jump in here for a second. The way I look at it, and this relates to, you brought up our original title, yeah. and I think this is sort of leads to why we have the title we have now, right? Because the way I look at this is that you have two securities, that they're actually the same in some sense, um, but now the people who want liquidity more are buying, you know, security A. Secu- people who need security less are buying uh, liquidity less are buying security B. And then liquidity B, security B becomes less liquid as a result. And because it's less liquid, you now have a bigger contrast in their liquidity. And now that 
exacerbates the fact this tendency for the people who want liquidity to buy security A and those who don't want it to buy security B. So then it's, it's, it's a feedback loop. That's why I use the word feedback in the title. This feedback loop that's making the liquid one more and more liquid, the less liquid one, less and less liquid, the contrast is growing. And of course, because of this, this hunger for liquidity among certain uh, insurers in this case that we're looking at, as Chris was talking about, but it's not just insurers. Insurers just happen to be the data we could get. They're a good example, but there's all sorts of other treasury traders who had an appetite for liquidity. So it gets exacerbated in the crisis. This feedback loop worsens, and now you get this huge contrast. So you have a huge contrast in liquidity, and that's going to affect the price. And then on top of that, you have this huge price being uh, paid for liquidity. And so that 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 difference in liquidity is going to command uh, a big price, and now you get you're finding yourself all the way up to this six percent uh, difference, which may not six maybe just doesn't sound so big, but in the treasury market, that's just enormous. I, I don't even know if there's a precedent for that. So, uh, have prices normalized? Has this price gap normalized since the financial crisis, or we're operating in a new normal? Well, actually, uh, Chris has been uh, tracking over uh, over time. Yeah, so I actually just this past week had put together um, an updated sort of the, the, I guess you can say the pricing error that we study in our paper. I updated that through just this past week. And while there is still some very small price differential, which could be due to who knows what, it's really, really largely come back in. That said, it had persisted through 2012 um, at the very least to actually quite a, a, a noticeable extent. And I was surprised in putting it together this past week that it had come together as much as it had because I have, since the crisis, increasingly heard dealers, market participants, discussing and bemoaning the reduction in liquidity in the treasury market in light of a lot of the post-crisis regulation that had been introduced. And part of that is regulation that affects the treasury cash market directly, and part of it is regulation that affects it through the repo market. Um, and so if you have the funding market being perhaps held back from operating the way it would normally, then the securities that are used as collateral in that funding market are affected as well. And I think what David was saying about the way in which we had traced the um, liquidity feedback, which ended up being our current title of the paper, um, that was very that was very interesting to be able to, with the data that we had, follow this through every step of the feedback process. And so we start out with this theory that says um, a long horizon investor is willing to um, buy a security that has a higher liquidity discount because they're amortizing that over a longer holding horizon over a longer number of years, um, and a short horizon investor, vice versa, is not willing to. And then we see that it's not just that initial 
willingness to buy or sell the security that matters, but then the very fact that you have the investor holding on to it for a period of time takes it out of commission and makes it more difficult for a counterparty to find that security who is looking for it. And then you see that manifest itself in the position of the market maker who is going to quote you a price to buy or sell the security. And they're looking at, well, how risky is it that I might be able to put my hands on that security or not? And that's what the price I quote you is going to depend on. Let me just drill down on one thing that Krista said, because you mentioned uh, new regulations. Let me just give the listeners one thing to Google once they get off the road if they're driving right now, um, which is the phrase supplemental liquidity ratio. Okay, it's a very obscure inside baseball bank regulatory term, but in fact, it's what everyone is talking about in the big money center banks, supplemental liquidity ratio. And basically, this is a capital test that the big banks have to satisfy now, which is, and this is, and you'll see when you Google this, it's not risk weighted. And that means that um, activities such as building a big treasury repo book that used to not require that much capital now do. Okay, now they do. And because they do, that has made um, various uh, market participants less interested in, in carrying a big repo book. And that's, that's giving you what uh, where Christopher's talking about. So um, going back to your uh, research in particular, what would be some practical implications um, to folks like, let's say, the Fed, uh, institutional investors, traders, and mar market makers? So I think one very practical implication is that market liquidity alone can have a large effect on prices. And from a policy perspective, if you can identify that that's what's going on at the moment, there are actually activities that policymakers can take to improve market conditions specifically for the securities are suffering. Um, that are suffering. And that was something that the Federal Reserve did indeed in the crisis by lending out certain securities that were particularly pinched and particularly in demand. Um, I think other perhaps practical implications are that by taking some kind of an action or by cutting through that feedback loop, it's possible to perhaps shift to uh, shift to not so bad an equilibrium. So if you have disruptions occurring due to market liquidity, this can cause other disruptions which are more fundamental in nature and which might have to, you know, which might turn some firms insolvent um, if that persists for a long period of time or if it becomes large enough. And if you can somehow prevent the liquidity situation from becoming as severe, then that may lessen the likelihood of those other extreme events, you know, the knock-on events, events from occurring. Um, and I think with regulation today as well, David mentioned the supplementary liquidity ratio, and there are several other um, ratios from Basel and the Dodd-Frank Act that have, they have made 
financial intermediation more difficult and more expensive for banks and dealers. And it's good to just recognize what the relative pricing implications, what the liquidity effects could be. Um, There is some recent research that shows that market liquidity is correlated with funding liquidity in times of stress. And so this is something that may indicate today, based on the data that I looked at in the last week, the Treasury market isn't suffering so much, but perhaps it's in a more fragile state whereby if we were in a bit of a downturn, things might move adversely more quickly. Perhaps we're in a more fragile state of the world with the Treasury market. David, do you have anything else to add? Um, well, I would just say this this paper's been uh, quite an adventure. As you see, we changed our, our title. You know, it, it shows you uh, sort of learning as we wrote it. Um, it was fun that it grew out of our class. Um, uh, I like to bring research to the class, but this is a time bringing the class to my research. Um, and um, we just saw this big price disparity and thought, well, we this we've got to we've got to learn about this. And uh, it was uh, it was quite an effort to uh, you know we started this. So we started this then, right? And we started this back in '08. Um, but it was uh, it was just one one thing after another, just just down the rabbit hole trying to trying to. F- piece together this whole this whole loop that we talked about but then you know it was a happy ending of uh, of getting it published and uh, talking about it here so what set your research apart from prior work in this area well um i don't want to necessarily suggest that we're being qualitatively different from uh are the scholars on whose uh, shoulders we stand uh, i would just say that um um, we sort of pieced together from the literature that we were reading about this, the, the possibility of this sort of uh, feedback loop of illiquidity. And then once that occurred to us, then it sort of helped p- fit the pieces together and, uh, and allowed us to tell a coherent story. So how will you follow up this research? For me personally, uh, I'm not working in the treasury area right now. I'm working some of them in the uh, money market area. Um, I haven't I haven't written a paper that sort of builds yet on this feedback uh, loop idea. Uh, I hope to. I, ho- I hope someone else does. That that that's when I feel like uh, we've had an impact that 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 someone else picks this up and and moves the ball forward from there. And generally speaking, I would say that the crisis, the research that comes out of it, that has come out of it, our paper included. Um, it's had a big impact in the way that researchers have sort of approached, approached asset pricing and thought about it, and they're much more willing to consider the role of frictions and not have all the necessary assumptions of perfect markets that perhaps before were much more of a long shot in perhaps researching something that didn't quite fit into the framework that had so solidly been accepted. Um, So I think that all of the research that has come out of the crisis has really gone very much in the direction of examining these frictions and perhaps institutional dynamics that affect prices that can be very important 
I also think that it has highlighted the underlying plumbing of financial markets because, as David was mentioning, a very important part of this arbitrage is indeed financing and is borrowing the security that you want to short. And can you do it? Is it available? Is it at a price that's not going to offset the returns to the cash side of the trade? And again, those are things that had been perhaps under, um, I don't want to say underappreciated, but I think they were underappreciated <laughs> in the past. Um, I remember, so I had, it, I before I did my PhD, I worked on the open market desk at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. And one of the things that, the thing I did in my last couple of years there was trading repo, um, trading repo and trading Fed funds and following the CP market. And I was sort of obsessed with money markets and short rates and that whole way that the dynamic of how this affected everything else. Uh, and I remember going into the PhD program asking people if it would be possible to have my area of research be this funding market liquidity type of focus. And over and over, I just heard, well, there's a very small audience for that. So <laughs> it'll be a niche. Um, you'll just have problems generating enough interest. And it's nice to know that now that is a whole area in and of itself. Um, and that not just that it actually is open to being researched now, but just to underscore it is so important, and this is something else that the crisis taught us, it's so important to um, the sort of it's the plumbing of all of the financial intermediation that occurs and everything else that goes on. It underlies everything. So we'll leave it right there. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. That's great to be Thank here. you so much for having us. You can find more insights from Knowledge at Wharton on our website, knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts in iTunes. We welcome your reviews. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.